Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 96 of the Benzo Free Podcast. This is part one of an exciting two-part interview, our conversation with psychiatrist and benzo advocate, Dr. Alexis Ritvo. This is a pretty good one, and I hope you enjoy it. I, I will have more interviews and roundtables coming up soon, too. I'm trying to schedule some out for the first part of 2022, so this is just the beginning, so please... Pay attention and um, and and whatever else I was going to say there. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm going to leave these things in because I have my script, but still, every now and then, I don't know how to finish a sentence, <laughs> and so I will just just kind of leave it hanging, which I'm going to do this time, and I'm going to move on. <laughs> As you know, I do write out my script. Um, as some of you know, some of you, this may be the first episode you're listening to. And you know what? I want to I want to say right now up front, welcome. I hope you enjoy our podcast, and I'm really glad you're joining us. This is the first one you've listened to. So glad to have you um, here as part of this. If it, if you've been listening for a long time, um, thank you so much for coming back. I love the fact that I have longtime listeners. Some of you for over a couple of years now have been listening to this podcast. In fact. I think our podcast in March is going to be three years old. So we've been doing this for a little while. I've been in a wave lately. Big surprise. <laughs> As I know many of you have too. And I know these can be really frustrating sometimes. Uh, for some of you, I'm sure you don't even have, you know, waves yet. Perhaps your symptoms appear to be constant and never ending. And, and I understand that I was at that phase at one time too. I have to admit, I, I limit what I say about my symptoms sometimes on this podcast. And I believe I've shared that with you before because I know some of the listeners look at my journey with benzo withdrawal as a sample of what theirs is going to be like. Um, since I'm seven and a half years off benzos and still have symptoms that can be anything um, that can be far from a motivating type of story to share. And I want to make sure that I'm motivating in, in this podcast and providing hope in this podcast instead of trying to tell people that this is going to be bad. I, I always want to mention when I talk about my symptoms, my lingering symptoms, that I say, number one, I'm in the minority and in the very small minority, probably only about 10, 10 to 15% of people who who have taken benzos long term wind up in a protracted withdrawal lasting lengthy like mine is so it's a small percentage and also I did some things wrong I have some extenuating circumstances as I've shared many times in this podcast 
So things happen that also probably have caused my um, protracted condition. So please don't use my example as a, as a, um, as a, what's the term I'm looking for? Fortune teller. I'm looking for another term for that as a predictor. There we go. We'll go with predictor as a predictor of what your experience will be because it's not. Everyone is completely different in this and by far most people will have a an easier experience than mine. Unfortunately, some of you have had a harder experience than mine also. And and for those, I really feel for you. And I, I hope this podcast is helping out a little bit. But as I said at the beginning, when I first started this podcast, I will be honest, and this is who I am. So I'm not going to hide what's going on with me, because if I did that, then you wouldn't trust me. Anyway, back to my wave, <laughs> which is what this was all about. For those of you who have been doing this for a while and have had waves come and go, and like I said before, some of you are in the beginning stages or an acute type of withdrawal, which means you're not having waves. Your your symptoms are just consistent and always on, and I know how how difficult that can be. But for those of us who get to that roller coaster phase of waves coming and going, and like myself, my waves can be pretty far apart now because I'm in I'm in protracted withdrawal, but of course I do still get waves. And I'm often slow to recognize a wave because I have some symptoms that just continue. And they're there with me all the time. They're usually minor, but I do have ones that, that stick with me. But when some of the older ones creep back in and they kind of build, I often, what's the term I'm looking for? See, I'm having trouble finding terms today. That's, that's another symptom. <laughs> Is my cognitive abilities. <laughs> oh, we all know that for those of you who've been listening to the podcast that I leave those in because I know many of you face the same problem and I figure it's just better for me not to edit out my mistakes and guffaws and, and all those ums that I do sometimes, although I do sometimes edit out my ums. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but still it's, it's slow to recognize my waves becoming because a lot of times I'll just have a symptom or two and I don't always think about it or I think maybe I'm not feeling well or maybe I got COVID again or maybe I'm fighting a cold or just stress. There's a lot of other instigators of maladies that we face in our life. And so it's hard to know if it's a wave of symptoms. And of course, these can be triggered by so many things. But anyway, I can go on for a while before I realize I'm in a way, but then eventually it kind of hits me. I think back and then I look at what I've been doing for the past week or two and I think, oh my God, I'm in a wave. I'm just curious if any of you have had that same um, kind of pattern that I have, but I get that a lot. It, it, it makes sense for me because I had a very stressful 2021, as many of you know, and I've shared that along the way between COVID work, my family issues. And so many other things going on. And many of you are dealing with those same things. I know I'm not the only one. Also, during that time, I was not taking good care of myself. I put on about 25 pounds. I wasn't exercising enough. I was in the car a lot, driving back and forth between Kansas City and Denver. I was overworked um, to the degree that I was trying to work on the, the Benzodiazepine Action Work Group and try to keep up with the podcast and managing my parents. It just it gets busy as so many of you who have families and work and outstanding circumstances and other things going on understand. I'm definitely not the only one here. 
but life makes it difficult for us to find times to take care of ourselves. But I am a true believer in taking that time. If you don't take that time for yourself, if you don't try to stay true to some of the tools that may have gotten you through benzo withdrawal, then unfortunately you will have some difficulties like I have had. And it's so easy to let those tools and practices that may have gotten us through the most difficult times in benzo withdrawal, it's so easy to let those fade and slip because we start feeling better. Well, I don't need those anymore. And I, you don't think that. It's just you run out of time to do them because now you're feeling good and you're not getting the constant reminders via the pain and aches and symptoms that you need to manage them by doing these tools. And you wind up back like I have where I need to reset and restart again. So this year, um, 2022, new resolution and all, I'm getting back to basics. Better diet, more exercise, even returning to my meditation, maybe even some yoga again. These tools got me through the hardest experiences of my life, the, those initial years of benzo withdrawal. And when things get tough again, I think I have to go back to basics. You know, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm staring at this circular, round, shiny, gold bowl that sits on my desk right now. It sits right on the right side of my desk. This is a Tibetan singing bowl, for those of you who don't know what they are, but it's made out of hard metal. I don't know what metal it is. Is it brass or something? It looks like brass. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a bowl, and it's built so that it maintains the resonance of whatever sound that it, that it, that it has. I, I'm familiar with this as being a drummer because I used to have to, you know, evaluate cymbals and different gongs and different um, chimes and different, you know, metallic objects. Each different had different resonances and for percussion we had to work with those. And anyway, this one is amazing is in its resonance. And resonance, of course, meaning it maintains the sound for a long, sustained period of time. Anyway, this was a gift from my best friend, JP. Many of you have heard me talk about him. He's traveled with me. Um, he's been in my life for several decades, and um, and he's just great to have around. I, I, I love this thing he got. This Tibetan singing bowl is great, and, and I love him for giving it to I mean, that's not why I love him. I love him because he's been my best friend for decades. But this bowl is a reminder of how thoughtful he is, and I just wanted to say a shout-out and thanks to JB. Um, he's also one of the mo truest listeners of this podcast. And, um, and as a friend, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to him for, for listening to the podcast and, and doing that. And that's, you know, I just hope I give back to him to some degree what he's given to me. Almost every morning I strike this bowl to start me off on a mindful note. Here, here, let me strike this for you. And you can kind of hear what I'm talking about. Here, just listen up. I love the resonance of that. Isn't that amazing? In fact, I'm going to re replace the bell that I have on 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 doesn't O N doesn't have a D on <laughs> on my um, moment of peace during the recording. So I'm going to record this eventually. I just haven't gotten around to it, and this will be our new meditation bell, um, our meditation bowl. I guess is more appropriate meditation sound that we'll have at the end of our. Um, and at the end of our podcast for our moment of peace. 
our original bell was from a set of concert bells, the glockenspiel, the concert bells that we play in percussion and the, from my days as a percussionist. But this, I think, is a much better sound. This is perfect for meditation. That resonance is amazing. I, I also have a candle on my desk that provides some nice calming aromatherapy. I think my one right now is sea salt driftwood. And it's a very nice scent. I love different scents. And those also help to remind me to calm and help provide a calming ambiance when I'm here at my desk. It's a little things like this that can help remind us to get back to our basics, to keep our basics and keep us taking care of ourselves in the long run. Anyway, I think these are good tools. And I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of those this morning. I figured that was a good way to kind of kick this off, but I don't want to take too long because we have an exciting feature. But before I jump into that, though, I do want to mention something on the calendar for me. I have a presentation coming up that I'm providing to a group. Um, I get these periodically, and I do different presentations at different groups. Some are private, some are public. But on February 22nd, I'll be speaking to one of the support groups at Benzo Warrior. Benzo Warrior is a great organization. They've been doing support um, for those people in the Benzo community for a long time. You can find them on Facebook under Benzo Warrior Group or on their website at BenzoWarrior.com. This, this community has over 2,100 members and provides a wide variety of resources, so please go check them out. I'll leave a link for this in our show notes. Anyway, I'm going to be speaking at one of their support group meetings on the 22nd of February. It is limited to group members, so you can't just pop in and say hi, but um, if you're wanting to join their group, please um, check them out and let them know. I, I think there's a process you go through for becoming a member, but um, if you're interested, please learn more and, and see if this is for you. Anyway, I'm going to be speaking um, on a topic. This one is going to be on, um, I believe, kind of life after benzos. So, returning to some semblance of quote-unquote a normal life. How do you get back to life even if you still have symptoms or protracted complications or other complications of loss of job, loss of um, relationship, whatever going on? How do we get back to normal? How do we get back to a, a fulfilling life or even a new life? I'm looking forward to it. So, And our format today's episode is our introduction, which you just heard, and part one of our conversation with Dr. Alexis Ridfo. Since we have this two-part interview and there's a lot lot to this interview, we don't really have time for other sections on these two episodes. So it'll just be introductions and we'll go right into the interview. So stand by for that. But before we do, one last thing. (laughs) As you always know, don't forget, I'd love to hear from you. Comment on our videos on YouTube, on our podcast posts, or via our feedback form on our website at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. And while you're there, perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list or even donate to support the work we do. Every little bit helps. I do greatly appreciate that. And remember, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Our feature today is part one of our conversation with Dr. Alexis Ridvo. In the first part of this interview, we discuss benzo organizations, legislation, advocacy, prescriber education, so much more. Our, our focus on this first part is primarily on benzo advocacy and awareness. In part two of our interview, which is in our next episode, 
we dive much deeper into the individual struggles of the patient on finding a doctor, tips for handling withdrawal, polydrugging, and, and much more. So please remember to listen to part two of this conversation in episode 97. I'll put a link to it in our show notes. Also, I attempted to put links to most of the resources mentioned in my conversation with Dr. Ridfo in our show notes also. So please check those out if you'd like to seek out more information from those resources. Alexis, I'm calling her Alexis because <laughs> she said it was okay. Um, actually, I've worked with her for a long time now. She's a colleague of mine and a friend. And as a fellow co-chair, she's actually my fellow co-chair of the Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup. I'm in meetings with her two to three times a week, and I just have to say she's amazing. I I'm so happy to have her on this podcast, and I thank her for her dedication to this cause and for taking the time to speak to us here. You know, before we dive into that conversation, let me share a little bit about her. Alexis Ritvo, MD, MPH, serves as Medical Director of the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and she is also co-chair for the Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup at the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. She's a board-certified addiction psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She has been the program director. Okay, one well, backing up. <laughs> blah blah blah. She has been the program director for the CU Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship since July of 2020. Dr. Ritvo has a passion for psychotherapy, teaching, and improving health systems and policies. Now, I, I can go on and on with her credentials because they run a whole page of paper, but I'd rather let Dr. Ritvo tell you more about her background. So let's join the conversation. All right. I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alexis Ritvo. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I was wondering if maybe we could start off with a little bit about your background, um, your medical background, what got you into psychiatry, um, and then we'll move into benzos after that. But let's just start out with your general background, if that's okay. Sure. So I am a board-certified addiction psychiatrist. So I, um, after completing medical school, which I went to Emory University in Atlanta, and actually also did a master's in public health and health policy there. Um, I then came back to Colorado, where I'm a proud native, and uh, did my psych general psychiatry residency, finished that in uh, June of 2016, and then I did a one-year uh, fellowship in addiction psychiatry and finished that uh, June of 2017, and came on to faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry, um, and starting in July 2020, became our Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship Director. Oh, that's great. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, family, anything you, you're wanting to share, anything like that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, as a good proud native, I always have to mention as many times as you can, then I'm proudly born and raised in Colorado. Um, <laughs> I am actually the child of two psychiatrists, but also one of multi-generational psychiatrists. So depending on one's views of psychiatry, it's either a calling or a disease. Um, I've been told I'm a congenital psychiatrist um, <laughs> by uh, an OB when I was a medical student. Um, so my parents, um, my father, Dr. Jonathan Ripo, is from the East Coast. So he was born in New York City, raised in Connecticut, and um, went to school and did all his medical school and internship out there and then came out west 
um, and like many fell in love with the, the outdoors and the mountains and uh, the kind of work hard, play hard attitude. And then my mom, uh, Joanne Ritva, was born in Minnesota and um, raised in all over Montana um, and then came to medicine actually later um, after doing work in uh, professional writing and also found her way to psychiatry. Um, and so they met in their psychiatry residency in Colorado. Yeah. And then my father's actually not only a psychiatrist, but addiction psychiatry. So he was in the group that kind of founded addiction psychiatry as a subspecialty. Um, uh-huh. And back in, I think it was 1997, around when it finally became a board certified specialty. And he was the first um, addiction psychiatry fellowship director here in Colorado. Um and he's still working and he's one of our supervisors at one of the sites for our fellows. So it's, it's pretty fun to get to collaborate with him. So oh, um, I don't come by this as uh, an original idea. <laughs> no, it's nice to have some of those running in the family like that. Um, since this is the Benzo free podcast, we might as well move on to that topic a little bit. And that's what we'll be talking about most of the time today's conversation. I'd like to start out with where did you first become interested in complications related to benzodiazepines. I know right now you focus a lot on benzodiazepines. So where did that shift come or was it a shift or, or how did that happen? Yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, as an addiction psychiatrist, you're studying a lot about uh, physical dependence, um, tolerance, and then as well, the other sequelae that come with addiction. And you find that many other psychiatrists and physicians aren't as comfortable with those issues and with a lot of the uncertainty that comes with dealing with physical dependence and withdrawal. And so increasingly in the, I was originally working in outpatient uh, addiction treatment center um, and there, and then the patients that would come into the residential center and then transfer or transition, I should say, to the outpatient would have patients that were on benzodiazepines, often prescribed some of them that um, did have a, a use disorder, but the vast majority were they had actually taken them as prescribed and then trying to get them off of them was really challenging. And then I should say the the other part of my time, um, I get to supervise general psychiatry residents in a general outpatient psychiatry clinic. And so on that side, we get trans, you know, referred a lot of patients that come from primary care or from other mental health prescribers Um, many who have been on these benzos chronically, even though that's not the indication for them, and who some recognize that they're having issues because of the long-term benzo use. Others aren't aware that maybe some of the difficulties they're having with concentration memory um, could be related to the benzos or even rebound anxiety. And so then working with those patients to try to see if they have interest, motivation to try to taper and and fumbling along the way, but trying to learn how to approach it in a way that you you get the patient on the same team with you and figure out how to try to minimize their symptoms. So that's kind of how I became interested. And then I guess it was about two years ago, um, ended up on a, a phone call. I, um, I can't remember if, I think you might've been there. I know some of our other <laughs> cohort was with um, the Department of Public Health and Education. Yeah, about yeah I remember that one. Mm-hmm. with benzos and, and um, suicide, uh, prescribed mm-hmm. benzos and suicide. Um, and kind of things just took off from there as far as 
gathering a group of us from Colorado that were interested in, in the issue. That's, that's actually a perfect segue. I was going to move to that topic next. Um, there's yeah. two organizations that you're involved with, I know, within benzodiazepine. So I'd like to first start well, start out with the one that you and I are both involved in, yeah. as you just mentioned, the kind of grassroots and how this got started. Um, you are fe my fellow co-chair, so we're both co-chairs for the Benzodiazepine Action Work Group within the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. And so, and I think you are the, one of the original founders and founded with um, Dr. Stephen Wright. And he was the original co-chair. I replaced him last year about this time um, when he retired, <laughs> as we know. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the group since we can both talk to this, but this is your interview. So I want you to do more of the talking if that's okay. But talk a little bit about what we do at Benzodiazepine Action Work Group and then we can move into some of the projects we've been working on. But maybe we can start overall with just, you know, how did this group get started? You mentioned a little bit of the background. Um, who are the members from? Where did you collect the members from? How did you get them interested in getting this going? Yeah. So, yeah. So I mentioned the initial meeting, which I think was December 2019, if I know that. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, Pre-pandemic. -pre um, and then from there... Um, our Department of Psychiatry at the University of Colorado School of Medicine does an annual um, lecture about suicide prevention. Um, and so in May of 2020, it was about benzodiazepines and suicide. And um, with one of my mentors, the one that actually uh, organizes that lecture, um, Dr. Michael Allen, with his support, he allowed us to uh, convene a group that after the, the actual grand rounds that was presented, met as a group of stakeholders interested in the issue of benzodiazepine safe prescribing and deprescribing. And so that kind of started the initial conversation, had kind of anyone, whether medical provider or um, uh, individuals from the public, affected individuals, public health professionals, um, join an initial meeting that same day after the, the grand rounds and talk about various interests uh, and ways to approach it. Um, from there, I can't remember when we next met, probably a few months down the line. I think it was like July. It's, it's, and pretty, then, it's pretty fuzzy in my brain. I know yeah, I was kind of hoping you would have a better memory on this than me. Pandemic. Um, <laughs> uh, and then um, I, I was aware of the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse because of my work in addiction and because they're with um, connected with our school pharmacy um, and right. knew that they had done a lot of really great work and gotten good funding for things like provider education. A big focus, their main focus started with prescription opioids and the re resulting opioid epidemic, and they had created these really successful work groups, um, both educating providers, uh, affected friends and family, harm reduction, especially getting um, naloxone to patients, all sorts of things, things with the prescription drug monitor, I, to name a few. And they had these work groups and I'd been kind of peripherally involved. And so the group of us that were uh, meeting in this, this stakeholders group kind of took a vote and agreed that um, we were interested in approaching the consortium to see if they'd be willing to uh, take us on as an additional work group under their kind of scaffolding because of the, the, the strong connection they have with the state legislature and getting funding and um, connections across the state. And it seemed like a really good way. I think the biggest 
reluctance uh, we all had was that their name includes prescription drug abuse and that we uh, an important part of our message is that the vast majority of individuals that suffer from injury from benzodiazepines mm-hmm. are taking them as prescribed um, right. and do not meet criteria for a use disorder or abuse of their prescription. Um, but we decided that that was not a big enough, that alone was not a reason to not um, join the consortium. So that's how we came to. Yeah, yeah that was yeah, a lot of, it's, it's funny when we go back that far to remember all the things that have happened over time to get us to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's talk about the focus of it now. I know we have several projects yeah. we're working on and a few I wanted to touch on with you. Um, let's start off with the guidance documents. Um, there were some subgroups and we worked on some documentation. Can you kind of talk a little bit about how that happened and 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 where those are? Are those available to the public? I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'm yes. asking you. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, one of the initial goals in the group was to create some, some sort of uh, deliverable that we could share with the public uh, via the, via the internet. So, I mean, while our focus remains helping Colorado, since we're um, that's where we live, um, that would be available to all. Um, and so we kind of realized there, there were kind of three subgroups that we wanted to focus on initially. So one was creating a safe prescribing guidance that would be no more than two pages plus references, a safe deprescribing or tapering guidance, again, no more than two pages and then references, and then also peer support, which has been right. um, uh, really lacking in this community for the, for individuals that are um, are struggling and suffering from issues with prescribed benzodiazepines and, and tapering them. Um, and so we just kind of had people break up into the groups, people reviewed the guidance documents across them. Dr. Stephen Raid, of course, who has mm-hmm. a walking encyclopedic um, <laughs> memory of all references related to benzodiazepine was vital in, in both of the prescribing and deprescribing documents. Um, and those are now posted on, on our work group page for the Colorado Consortium um, for Prescription Drug Abuse. Mm-hmm. So if you go there and you go to the Benzo Action Work Group, they're at the bottom of the page. We're updating them to include that um, we did them with the the support and um, agreement of our uh, partner organizations. So, I believe your right. your um, podcast, um, as well as um, the Benzo Information Coalition and the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, um, and then the Schreiber Research Group are kind of all groups that have had members that have been very involved uh, with our work group. Oh, great. And actually, that's at um, the website for that, just so people know, is corxconsortium.org. And as um, Alexis mentioned, if you go there, click on work groups, you'll see benzodiazepine action, and that'll take you to the page for that. Um, let's talk about another, a couple more. Um, one is, of course, uh, prescriber education. This is one I know that you would spearheading. And um, this is a critical one because so often on the podcast, we get the I, I got to say complaints, but it's, you know, the, you know, the feedback about doctors, not finding a doctor they, who can help, not finding a doctor who's educated, or even that, that their psychiatrist or GP wants them to stay on the drug and doesn't even know that there's a problem with these long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, you're working on some prescriber education. Explain to us a little bit how that might help and what you're doing and, and what kind of progress, you know, going forward on that. Yeah. So, um, we and and as as a common refrain today is you and I along with this other kind of sub 
uh, core group um, started with te- actually testifying in front of the state legislature for House Bill right. 1276, um, which was largely for substance use disorders, but included some really important um, components that affect benzodiazepine prescribing. And so the two things in that bill um, that that got passed, one was a new requirement that prescribers limit the amount of benzodiazepines they're prescribing initially. So if a patient has not had a benzodiazepine in the last 12 months, that the initial the initial script is limited. Um, right. I, I keep going back to see what the final rules ended up being. And, you know, it's, um, it's hard to make, they were kind of going back and yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, I have to keep reminding myself. I, I'm confused on it every time I look at it. Say, I, I don't remember if it, we tried, we wanted it to be a week. I think it's either two weeks, it might be four. Um, yeah. But the idea being trying to limit so that people aren't initially on more than the um, indicated two to four weeks. But at the same time, re- being really careful to make sure that it said any prescriber and it didn't have to be the same prescriber so that you didn't have patients that had been on these medications, say, starting with a new prescriber and suddenly being not able to continue um, and say, ending up with acute um, withdrawal. So that was a big, a big part was getting that requirement. And, um, and then the other was that the, the law included funding for additional prescriber education, both for opioids, prescribing opioids, as well as for prescribing benzodiazepines. And so with that funding, and with the support of the provider education work group, we're developing um, what we think will probably be a four four week uh, lunch and learn series about safe prescribing of benzodiazepines. I think we're estimating that we'll do it in May, and so those will be live um, or web, you know, virtual, virtually yeah. live um, lunchtime events um, for any prescribers free that count as um, continuing medical education, and then they'll be recorded so that we can um, then post them and make them available to the public. And then we'll also use the funding to make sure we do a good kind of uh, campaign to make sure that especially prescribers across the state of Colorado are aware of um, of this free resource for um, education about safe prescribing of, of benzodiazepines. Another unique part that we're trying to add to it is hopefully start each of the presentations with a brief um, presentation to be redundant, but um, from a benzo survivor that talking about their own experience with benzo. I mean, I think that's something that is really powerful. I mean, whether it's, I mean, this is how laws get passed, right? It's the stories, not the numbers. Um, And I think for providers, you know, many of them aren't like, if they if they don't know about this, um, or if they haven't been open to it, they're not the ones um, necessarily mm-hmm. continuing to see these patients once they're uh, already affected. Um, right. Instead, I mean, I, I because this is an area of interest for me because I have addiction background dealing. So managing withdrawal, I mean, patients get referred to me, and mm-hmm. um, and I end up seeing them. So. Um, I think the lived experience is really important for 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 prescribers to really hear, you know, this estimated ten to fifteen percent, although maybe even higher, of individuals that really suffer from long term uh, use of benzodiazepines and and trying to um, right. come off of them. 
yeah, it's it's a it's an ongoing problem. And I, and I love the fact that you're trying to include the lived experience. And I, I remember back to when you and um, we were working with Dr. Stephen Wright and stuff and getting some of this set up. One of the key things he mentioned that I thought was really valuable, he says, it was the personal stories he saw at Tibbs at the International Benzodiazepine Symposium that really helped to change his prescribing practices and change his mm -hmm. opinion about benzodiazepines. And I, I, I'm glad to see that, you know, at least the medical professionals are realizing those stories are important. And that's a factor that we need to include with that. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, let's talk about one other, one other project here before we move on to a different group. And that is the benzodiazepine peer support training program um, that we have been working on. And um, this is one of those things that we got some funding for. And can you just talk, talk a little bit about this? I know I can too, but this isn't about me. So I want you to kind of be the yeah. one who can speak to this program. Right. I'm more the, the support, I guess the, the medical provider support for this one, but, um, but still like so excited and proud to be associated with it. So like we said, we, you know, there's this huge um, lack of support for individuals that are dealing with injury from benzodiazepines. So, yeah, so we recognize there's a, a great need for an evidence-based, um, effective kind of uh, program that would provide peer support for individuals suffering um, from injury from benzodiazepines. Uh, so we had an opportunity to apply for some funding to speak to some experts in the field of let's see, peer recovery coaching and peer mm -hmm. in Colorado, they're kind of under the same umbrella and peer support, um, which are traditionally um, peers providing services either in the, in, for mental health, as well as for um, substance use disorders, which is, I always have to say also a mental health issue, but separated. Yes. And so we looked into kind of what the requirements are in Colorado for getting that certification um, and then outreached um, some individuals that have run and developed some of these curriculums that meet those criteria. And so we contacted them and kind of created a core group. And our goal is to create a um, so the peer peer support, peer recovery coaching requirements. There's kind of a core curriculum that everyone has to take to get that certification. And right. then there's another set of hours of didactics that's required, but it's not, um, there's not predetermined exactly what you have to take. It just has to fall within certain categories. Yeah. So our goal is to create this elect, you know, series of um, materials, uh, didactic materials that would meet that kind of elective time and that would be focused on providing peer support for individuals um, uh, suffering from benzodiazepine injury. Great. Great. Yeah, it's been pretty exciting. I know we got the funding through ARPA, um, which is a federal grant and came through the consortium and we're just working out the details. I just want to also mention um, the Schreiber Research Group is a major player in this and um, Terry Schreiber and her organization will be managing the funds and trying to um, steerhead, spearhead that piece of it. And I want to say how much I appreciate that. And also want appreciation to, um, especially to Jose and to Gina at the consortium and for all their support in getting the funding for this program to get kicking off. So um, that's been fantastic. And I think we have a lot of, a lot of potential here for creating. Uh, the thing I'm most excited about is this is the, these are the classes that people normally take for, as you know, for addiction, you know, um, recovery coaches and for people dealing with substance abuse issues. 
And so we're actually going to offer a program to them that will also include benzodiazepines so they'll understand the differences and how people suffering from dependence to benzos might differ from some of the other substances. Yeah. And I think there's, I mean, I will say increasingly within the world of addiction, there's also more and more um, issues with um with benzodiazepine use disorders, yeah. so it will be an interesting kind of overlap or Venn diagram. Um, like I said, we know the majority of people that take prescription benzos are taking them as prescribed um, that develop these issues. And then I think within the world of addiction, there's a mix of individuals taking sure. them as prescribed and then some that do develop a use disorder plus a whole nother realm of these um, designer benzodiazepines that people that are not prescription buying online, but I think the material we provide will be helpful with all of that um, right. for, for, for individuals that are working within the um, addiction community. Great. I think we'll, I'll close out here the Benzodiazepine Action Work Group a little bit. And we'll move on to another organization you're working with. Um, before I do, just real quick, for those who want more information, you can go to corxconsortium.org, um, click on work groups, and you can go down to Benzodiazepine Action to learn more and see some of those documents that um, Alexis was referring to. So please go check that out. Let's move on to another organization, and this is the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. You, I want to say congratulations to you officially here on being the new medical director for this organization. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your role and how this came to you and, and how, th how this all happened? Yeah, so uh, the former medical director was Dr. Stephen Wright. Clearly, <laughs> he has been very involved in kind of a, a founding uh, medical person in in trying to uh, change the, the tide here. And he was retiring, and I have been had been in, come on as an advisor with the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and was asked to start to interview some of the um, physicians that were applying to be medical director. And so I did several interviews and met some really interesting people. Um, almost all of them with some sort of addiction specialty background, whether addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry. However, I realized while I still feel like there's so much I don't know about this. Um, that uh, I had even in my, you know, year and a half, I guess, of doing this work, I had more experience and knowledge um, than many of them did because they were not yet working in this sphere. And kind of the stars aligned and I was able to figure out carving out some time um, in my work with the, the Department of Psychiatry to be able to be contracted right. um, basically as a consultant medical director for the Alliance. And so in that role kind of serve as, you know, reviewing um, a lot of the, the, the work they're doing as far as um, writing papers, collaborating with the, the FDA on the safe use initiative, trying to develop um, an echo model for providing education to um, prescribers uh, that are seeing patients um, struggling with um, issues with prescribed benzodiazepines. Um, and so it just kind of, kind of fell, fell together. So, um, that's, that just that's great. So could you elaborate on some of those projects that the Alliance is working on? Um, I know some of them, I'm, I'm part with a couple of them, but there's so many other things going on that I don't even know about. So could you maybe just talk yeah, to a few of them? I mean, and I still feel like I'm still learning because, um, the executive director, Bernie Silvernail, and then Doreen Shervin, who, right. I know she has a, a, public health background. I don't, I can't on the tip of my tongue, I can't think of her exact title in the Alliance. Um, but they have, they have done a remarkable job, 
you know, they're, the Alliance is very focused on the issue of safe prescribing. Um, right. And they were instrumental in getting the FDA to revise the black box warning on benzodiazepines so that in September 2020, it was updated to include um, that uh, taking prescribed benzodiazepines has this, you know, risk of physical dependence, especially when taken right. beyond two to four weeks, as well as subsequently issues with withdrawal and potentially even protracted withdrawal, or um, they don't use in the black box warning the word injury, but, you know, some um, mm-hmm. really longstanding um, persistent symptoms after taking them. And so that was a huge um, accomplishment to get that done. But now the next step, sadly, I'm constantly reminded that actually many prescribers aren't aware of that block box warning or what what it added. And so I think, you know, figuring out what else we need to do. So I know they have um, been working with the FDA on a, a continued safe use initiative. So again, how do we make sure that benzodiazepines are used and prescribed safely, um, mm-hmm. uh, safe prescribing. Um, and then other things, I mean, we're on a group that's looking at writing a paper that really, which has been quite an interesting process, trying to decide what should the agreed upon term, <laughs> term be yeah. for what is referred to, as you've heard me say, various, you know, as either protracted, um, Protracted withdrawal, post-acute withdrawal, benzodiazepine yeah, this injury. Is, this, is, this has been a fun process. I have to admit, yeah. I'm, I'm on the same team, and it's been it's been a fun process trying to figure out the basically how, how do we name this thing? What what do we call this thing that we call so many yeah. different things? Like you said, benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, protracted withdrawal, um, you know, benzo injury syndrome. There's so many terms out there. Yeah, neurological disorder, dysfunction, neuropsychiatric, neurocognitive. No, toxicity. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's another, uh, yeah, big one that's on the um, in in process, um, right. and and has been really interesting because it's really. I mean, I think what I've enjoyed so much about this work is, um, I think to be effective, I mean, you have to have this multidisciplinary group that is not just, you know, in the vacuum of medical providers. Um, yeah. or one specialty. Um, so we really have a whole a whole array of folks from, um, you know, addiction psychiatrists, addiction medicine, um, uh, affected individuals, public mm-hmm. health, you know, folks with public health, a lot of overlap. I mean, actually, I know within each of those categories, we have one individual, you know, we have at least one individual that is um, an affected individual and um, some of those other. Uh, right, right roles um and actually that's that same that same setup is what i really enjoy about all these if i had to conclude like the three organizations our, our work group the benzodiazepine action um work group along with the alliance for benzodiazepine pra- blah, blah. <laughs> let's try that again alliance for benzodiazepine best practices um and of course benzodiazepine information coalition um all of them do seem to be like you mentioned that blend of medical professionals and lived experience and i do think that's one of the reasons why these three groups have had some of the most best progress, at least I believe in the last few years, as far as making a change for, for benzodiazepines and treatment of people suffering from benzodiazepines. Yeah, absolutely. 
And then um, I've been really impressed in the in the Alliance, which has m- more of a focus on prescribers, although it does have some tools and other things right. um, oriented towards patients and, and has collaborated with, as you've mentioned, these three groups have all co- collaborated and have a lot of overlapping um, uh, members. Um, the Alliance has, he's actually, uh, Bernie Silvernail has recruited individuals from across the globe. Yeah. Um, that website, just so everybody knows, is at benzoreform.org for the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. Please go check out their website. There's so much information there. Um, check out the people that are, you know, that are, check out the About Us page, learn about the people who are working there and the progress they made. It's an excellent resource if you haven't checked that out. So please do so. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as as much as I did. I, I noticed that while I while I listen to myself and I edit myself when I'm doing interviews, I talk a lot faster. <laughs> Then when I'm just talking one-on-one to the mic here to you. I want to thank you to Dr. Ridvo for taking the time to speak to us. Please don't forget to listen to part two of this interview on episode 97 of the podcast, which was released on the same day as this one. Of course, there is a link, blah, 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 one more time. There is a link for this episode in our show notes. And before I close, please allow me 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal or professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. Thank you again for joining me, and please remember to check out part two of this conversation. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.